All right, so before we get into verse nine, I've gotta ask you this question. How many of your Bibles have brackets around verses nine through 20? Go ahead and look. And if you have brackets around verses nine through 20, just raise your hand and let me know if that is true. All right, so we got about 50% of the congregation. For those of you who are wondering why verses nine through 20 are in parentheses, I need uh, to explain why. I'm your pastor and, and that's my part of my job. And so the first five minutes or so of this message, it's gonna kind of feel like you're in a Bible college class or a seminary class as I explain why verses nine through 20 are in brackets. Now, before I answer that question, let me talk a little bit about the authenticity and reliability of the New Testament, which I hope you have opened on your laps right now. You need to know that after the authors penned, hand wrote the four gospels and acts and all the epistles, the Pauline epistles, the general epistles, as well as Revelation, you need to know that after they wrote those original autographs, that those originals were copied over and over and over again, and those copies circulated throughout the growing number of churches all around the Roman Empire. Now at some point, the original autographs were lost. There isn't a, a, it, there's not a museum somewhere, you know, like over in the Vatican, where we can find the original Gospel of Mark that he actually penned, or the original letters of the Apostle Paul. But thank God that many copies of the originals had already been handwritten before the original autographs were lost. The fact that we don't have the original autographs should not in any way, shape, or form uh, weaken your confidence in the New Testament. Concerning the reliability of the New Testament, gotquestions.org says this. Is the original Bible still in existence? That's the question. Here's the answer. While no one possesses the original autographs, we do have many extant copies. The word extant simply means surviving copies. And the work of biblical historians via the science of textual criticism gives us great confidence that today's Bible is an accurate reflection of the original writer's work. And so even though we don't have the originals, here's what we do have. So right now, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Okay, so even though we don't have the original articles, here's what we have. We have well over 5,000, almost 6,000, thousand Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,000 miscellaneous New Testament manuscripts, and the oldest date all the way back to the second century AD. And so because of the vast number of extant copies that we have, and because of the early dating of a good number of those manuscripts, you need to know this. If you never knew this, this is important information. And that is that the New Testament is regarded as the most reliable piece of ancient literature that we have from the ancient world. Let me say that again so you get this down deep in your heart. Because of the vast number of extant copies and because of the early dating of a good number of those manuscripts, the New Testament is regarded as the most reliable literary document that we possess from ancient 
times. Ladies and gentlemen, what you have is the word of God. Now, let's get back to our original question. Why are there brackets around verses nine through 20? And the answer is because two of the almost complete earliest documents that we have, the names, if you're interested, if you wanna Google this later, um, is the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Those are the two oldest ancient Greek extant copies that we have of the Bible and the, both of them are almost complete. Those two earliest documents do not contain verses nine through 20. And so that has given uh, grounds for a great debate to occur within Christianity. And by the way, if you're into this kind of stuff, uh, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Don't be like a bull in a china shop. Hey, you know, when you're debating these type of things, remember that you're a Christian and be polite and be respectful as we have this in-house debate among Christian scholars. But there is a debate among scholars concerning whether or not Mark actually wrote the last section of this gospel. Those who say Mark did not write verses nine through 20 have several arguments to prove their position. One of them is the abrupt subject change between verses eight and nine. And so in verse eight, you have the women at the tomb. The tomb is empty. The angel said, Jesus is risen. They're bewildered. They're astonished. They're freaking out. But then all of a sudden you turn to verse nine and you come upon an entirely new subject about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. There's not that normal flow that you see throughout the gospel of Mark. You don't see that flow between verses eight and nine. Not only that, those who say verses nine through 20 are not original with Mark. Mark did not write verses nine through 20. They have another argument, and that is the argument of the vocabulary change. I don't know if you knew this, but in verses eight, uh, nine through 20, there are 18 new words. Verses nine through 20, Mark 16, there are 18 new words that you find that cannot be found in the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And so based on those two arguments and some others that I don't have time to get into this morning, you need to know that many scholars today, in fact, most biblical scholars today do not believe that Mark wrote verses nine through 20, but here's what they say happened. There was a scribe who added those verses later in order to give the gospel of Mark a proper ending. And I'm not talking about liberal theologians that are espousing this. I'm talking about good, solid, evangelical Bible teachers and Greek scholars like John MacArthur and Chuck Swindoll. And so even though Mark probably did not write this last section, the question this morning is, should we just completely discount it? Should we right now close our Bibles and close in prayer and go home? And the answer is absolutely not. And there's lots of good arguments of why I'm gonna teach this to you this morning. Way before the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus were written, handwritten in the fourth century AD, way before that, there were some church fathers in the second century AD, and listen to this, they quoted from verses nine through 20. Okay, for example, you have the church father Papias. He referred to verse 18. And so once again, 
Verses nine through 20, did Mark actually write it? Probably not, probably written by a scribe. But even though the two earliest Greek documents don't contain verses nine through 20, church fathers from the second century AD quoted from this passage. Papias referred to verse 18 in AD 100. That's remarkable. Justin Martyr in his first apology quoted verse 20 in AD 151. Irenaeus in Against Heresies, my last seminary class, I had to read a portion of Against Heresies and I'm so glad God raised up a man named Irenaeus to fight off false teaching and cults way back in the second century AD. So Irenaeus in Against Heresies quoted verse 13 in AD 180. Hippolytus referred to verse 19 and somewhere between AD 190 and 227. And so the fact that these early church fathers and theologians referred to this last section of, of Mark's gospel tells us two things. It tells us number one, that verses nine through 20, ladies and gentlemen, was written in the first century AD. And then number two, it also tells us that these guys accepted verses nine through 20 as authoritative. And so why should we teach this passage? Here's why. Because, as I just said, the early, some of the early church fathers accepted the passage as authoritative. Number two, because the vast majority of later Greek manuscripts, remember there's thousands of Greek manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts that we have on hand that are still extant today. And so the, even though the two earliest don't have nine through 20, the vast majority of other Greek manuscripts do include verses nine through 20. And then three, inspired events and truths found in other gospels are referred to in this passage, such as Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, John 20, and Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And so even though a scribe most likely did add these verses in the first century, here's what you need to know. Again, if you're with me, say amen right here. What he added is true. What he added is true and is derived very early from the apostolic tradition, therefore we will teach these verses. The very first church in Jerusalem were devoted, Acts 2.42, to four things. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, Peter, James, John, Paul. And so whoever this guy was, maybe he was a friend of Mark, who added the ending in the first century, he derived that from the apostolic tradition and therefore as Christians, we absolutely must teach these verses. All right, so there's your seminary class this morning. By way of review, let me just say, Mary Magdalene, some of the women, early on that Sunday morning, went to Jesus' tomb. They were expecting to find his body that's why they brought spices. And when they got there, they were shocked to discover that the stone had been rolled away. And you remember from last week, they entered in and they were shocked even further when they saw an angel. And so by way of review, look back please at verse six. And the angel said to these women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has Risen. Everybody say those three words. Go ahead. Now say it like you mean it. Go ahead. That's the central 
uh, truth of our Christian faith right there. If Jesus is still dead somewhere over in Palestine, we're in big trouble, ladies and gentlemen. But the good news, the truth, is that he has risen. If you missed last week, you can go back and get all the evidence that I shared last week. He has risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. And the angel went ahead and told the women in verse seven, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And so in verse eight, the women went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And now we get to our text, verse nine. Now when he, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out Seven demons. And so your first uh, point today regarding the text is that the risen Christ appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, I love that. I love that the first person that Jesus revealed himself to after the resurrection was a woman. And I'll talk about that here in a moment. Now, Where does this person who wrote the ending of of Mark, where does he get this information? He gets it from John chapter 20. And so you can turn there if you want, but I'll I'll just tell you the story quickly of John chapter 20. Again, Mark tells us that at first the women were so astonished that they didn't say anything to anybody, but then when they kind of settled down, calmed down, John tells us in John 20 that they took off running and Mary Magdalene took off running and found Peter and John. Peter and John, wherever they were hiding in Jerusalem, Mary Magdalene found them and she told them about the empty tomb. She told them about the angel who said he's risen. And so what did Peter and John do? They jumped up and they started running to the tomb. Now I think it's hilarious that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, has to insert in his Gospel that as him and Peter were running, at first they started off together but he outran Peter. I love the fact that he he wants to humbly include that in his gospel for the whole world to know how fast of a runner John is. And so he gets to the tomb first, and for whatever reason, maybe he's a little timid, he decides, I'm not gonna go in there. And then later, here comes Peter, huffing and puffing, holding his side, and Peter, in classic Peter fashion, is like, get out of my way, he goes right into the tomb. And what does Peter see? Does he see a body, yes or no? He sees the linen cloths that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapped the body up in, and he sees the shroud folded up in a place by itself. And then John's like, okay, Pete's in there, I guess it's okay, and he goes in, and he has to again humbly tell the whole world that he saw and believed. And by the way, in his gospel too, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, And so he tells us he's a fast runner. Jesus loves me more than anybody else. And I'm the first guy who believed in his resurrection. But anyway, that's just uh, so funny to me. And uh, I know I'm gonna meet John someday and I'm probably gonna have to explain why I'm telling you guys all this. But anyway, they go home. They don't know what's going on. Mary, who followed them, decides to hang out at the tomb. And she's crying. 
weeping. She loved the Lord. And she decides, I'm gonna look in one more time. And she looks in and now she sees two angels. And the two angels said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Husbands, how many times have you said that to your wives? I'm just kidding, okay. (laughs) Why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they laid him. And then she turns around and she sees a man who she thinks is the gardener. And the man says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then we read this. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned, can you imagine how happy she was? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabuni. And and all of a sudden, Matthew tells us in his gospel, chapter 28, that she just, man, plants down on her knees. She grabs his ankles and his feet. She's got him in a death grip. She's so happy to see the Lord. And Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, right? Let me go. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, why did uh, Jesus say to Mary, don't cling to me? Was he rejecting her desire for, for fellowship? No, 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 no. Hey, this is very applicable to our lives today right here. Jesus told Mary not to hold on to him then so she could enjoy the closest possible fellowship with him later. Now think through this with me, I'll explain what I mean. As Mary was holding on, death grip, holding on to Jesus' legs, he says to her, Mary, don't cling to me. Right, in other words, Mary, it's okay. I'm alive, let me go. I need to ascend to the Father. You're holding me down, you know? Don't cling to me. And so she didn't realize it, but by clinging to the Lord, Mary was doing two things. The first thing that she was doing was she was trying to preserve the relationship that she used to have with Jesus. Are you guys listening to me this morning? She's trying to preserve the way it once was with Jesus' three, three and a half year ministry. She didn't realize it, but that's what she was doing. And not only that, number two, in essence, she's holding him back, trying to keep him there. He wants to go and ascend to the Father. What Mary didn't realize is that everything has changed. Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has risen. Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and the grave, and hell. And now she needs to let him go so that he can return to the right hand, the place of honor, sitting next to the Father in glory victoriously. Why is that important? Why is it important that she lets him go so that he can go up? Here's why. Because when Jesus went up, who did he send down? The Holy Spirit of God. And when the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign Holy Spirit entered into Mary's heart, then at that point, she had the closest, sweetest fellowship she would ever, ever have with Jesus in her life. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit 
which by the way is what Acts is all about, which I can't wait to get to. And so during his three year ministry, think this through with me, Jesus could only be at one place at one time. And so Mary was from Magdala, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus delivered her from seven demons. She's eternally grateful. And she loved hanging out with the Lord. She loved listening to him, being discipled by him. But here's the thing. He could only spend only a limited amount of time with people. And so she, no doubt, would look through her window at the Sea of Galilee um, from her little home village, Magdala, waiting, waiting, waiting. When's he gonna come? And then, then, man, the day that he came, whenever that was, whenever whenever him and Peter and John and Matthew were coming up on the boat, she's like, woohoo, he's here. Rabboni, right? And then and she would hang out with him that day and he would heal people and he would teach and she'd be there. But guess what? Those good times had to end. She had to say goodbye. But now that Jesus has gone up and he sent the spirit down, we don't have to say goodbye anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you, are you, of you are thankful for the close, intimate, sweet fellowship that we can have any place, anytime with the Holy Spirit of God? He's, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't promise to keep you from storms. He promised to be with you in your storm. And so all hell may be breaking loose in your life this morning. Everything may be falling apart. But here's what you need to know. Christ lives in you. And if you will take that time by faith to go for a prayer walk or go to the beach or hang out with the Lord at a park or on your back porch, and I'm not talking about two or three or four or five minutes. I'm saying really hang out with the Lord. Guess what? At some point by his glory, he'll reveal his glory to you and you'll have that close, sweet fellowship with him. And it'll strengthen your faith. And so after this encounter with the Lord, Mary told the disciples, I've seen him. Right? She runs back to them again. I've seen him. He's alive. How did they respond to Mary? Look at verse 10. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So the disciples are all stressed out, grieving and crying. Mary comes bursting in again. Verse 11, but when they heard that he was alive, and had been seen by her, by Mary. They straightened up, wiped their tears, and said, praise the Lord. Is that that what it says? (laughs) No, look at this human nature. They would not believe it. How sad these men would not accept Mary's testimony. You need to know in that culture, in that day, a woman's testimony was not as highly regarded as a man's testimony. And so in that way, in many ways, women in that day were considered inferior to men. How many of you are thankful when Jesus came, he changed all that? Jesus Christ came and he changed all that. And you know how we know? Because the first person he decides to reveal himself to after he's alive is a woman, Mary Magdalene. You need to know that men and women are absolutely equal when it comes to our intrinsic value before God. All human beings have been made in the image of God. 
Therefore, all human beings, no matter what their religion or race or cultural background or political views, ladies and gentlemen, we gotta get it through our thick heads that all human beings deserve respect because they're made in the image of God. <laughs> Equal, totally. And so remember that the next time you get upset and angry at somebody and you wanna rip that person's head off, they're made in the image of God and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 10. And so she went and she told them and they didn't believe. And I'm sure Mary Magdalene walked out of the room shaking her head thinking, men, you know, what are you gonna do? And verse 12 says, after these things, he appeared in another form. That's cool. You see what Jesus does in his resurrected, glorified body? He appears, he disappears. He appears in another form. He walks through walls, he eats, he flies. And by the way, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And so after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And so right now, we have a reference to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which can be found in Luke 24. Do you see what this person is doing who, who added this last section? He's taking from the apostolic tradition in the first century truth, inspired truth from John 20, from Luke 24. Luke, by the way, a doctor and a historian who went around and investigated these things before he wrote his two historical books of Luke and Acts. And so now we hear, we hear the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just tell you the story. On that first resurrection Sunday, two men got up from Jerusalem and started walking to Emmaus. Now, by the way, why did they walk on Sunday and not Saturday? It's the Sabbath, no work on Saturday. So Sunday, they walk, they're walking to Emmaus, they're discussing everything that just happened in Jerusalem concerning Jesus, and they're sad, right? How many of you guys, you just you have a bad day, you're down, and you need some cheering up? Well, that's what the Lord loves to do for us, and here comes Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. He's disguising himself. He comes in another form, and he's walking on the road with them, and he engages in conversation as they're walking. He says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they say, well, we're, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a great prophet in word and deed before God and man. And we're sad because our rulers condemned him to death and, and the Roman Empire crucified him and, and we thought he was gonna be the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was gonna be our savior, the Messiah, but, but guess not. And not only that, some of the women that we know, they were down at his tomb this morning and they came back and they told us the tomb is empty and some angels, can you believe this? Some angels said he's alive. You know, those emotional women, whatever they were saying. And look how the stranger, capital S, responds to these men. Oh, what's the next word? Ladies and gentlemen, listen. If you're a doubter, God says you're foolish. 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the, who has spoken? The prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, everybody say Moses. Moses. And the prophets, everybody say prophets. prophets. And by the way, in the Jewish Bible, you know, we look at the historical books of the Old Testament, we say that the historical books, the Jews call them the former prophets. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, say the word scriptures, the things concerning himself. This stranger showed them from Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law, Torah, the Pentateuch. He showed them, and he didn't have these scrolls that he was pulling out from his backpack and reading them. He knew it in his head and his heart, because guess what? It came from his head and heart, through Moses, through inspiration. And from Moses, he interpreted to them from those scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, they don't know it's Jesus. They just think it's some stranger that's, that's teaching and preaching and discipling them right now. But he shows them, no doubt, from the sacrificial system. Have, have any of you ever read Leviticus? He shows them from the sacrificial system that in the old covenant, you had, when you sinned, the wages of sin, help me out, is, so that animal's gotta die to appease the wrath of God. But guess what? Those animal sacrifices typified the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And not only is he the, the Lamb of God, he is the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus Christ is the only human, 100% God, 100% man, he's the only human being who ever kept, my watch is broken. <laughs> well, praise the Lord. Time for a new watch. That means I can just go on for hours. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. Jesus Christ is the only human who ever kept the law of Moses perfectly. He never sinned one time. That makes him a lamb without blemish and without spot. Those lambs had to be unblemished lambs. And so no doubt, when he went to Moses and shared these scriptures with them, he was sharing about the sacrificial system and how those, those animals typified the Lamb of God who just died, guys, wake up. He just died three days earlier for your sins. And then he went to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, if you're new to the Bible, Read Isaiah 53 before you go to bed tonight and you'll know that that's Jesus 700 years before he walked the earth. And so what was he doing? From the scriptures, he was showing how the scriptures were fulfilled by the Christ. And the two disciples so enjoyed this Bible study, man, they're pleading him, please don't go, right? They have a hunger for the word. This is my prayer for this church family that we would develop a hunger for God's word. We would want God's word so bad. And so they're like, don't go, don't go. He's like, I gotta go, no, don't go. And, and it's, okay, I'll have dinner. And, and so what does he do? He takes the bread, he prays, he lifts it up, he breaks it. How many times has Jesus done that in three years? And they know it's the Lord. And as soon as they know it's the Lord, what does Jesus do? 
poof, he's gone. Hey, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. That means that someday you and I are gonna be in our resurrected, glorified bodies and we're gonna be having a conversation and I'm gonna smile at you and go poof and then I'm gone. <laughs> it's gonna be so cool when we get there. But then they said this. They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the what? The scriptures. Everybody say scriptures. It doesn't say, you know, didn't our hearts burn while he talked to us and gave us a motivational speech? It doesn't say that. It says he opened the scriptures. What are we doing in churches? Why have we stopped opening the scriptures in our church services? I don't understand. What's with all the motivational speeches with one or two verses, you know, thrown in there? And that's not what's gonna change us. Jesus said in John chapter eight and verse 31, he said, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples indeed and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is the truth and this is what will set us free. This is what makes us disciples. So I wanna encourage you, man, get into God's word, abide in God's word every, 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 every single day. Now, after this amazing Bible study, it says in verse 13 that they, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, went to the disciples. The disciples were in hiding. And they went back and told the rest. So if you're looking at verse 13, just say amen. amen. Right, you got, you got what's going on here? The two disciples, Jesus just revealed himself alive to them. They run back to Jerusalem. They go in where the disciples are hiding. They say the Lord's alive. And at the end of verse 13, all the disciples straightened up, wiped their tears and said, praise the Lord. Is that, is that what it says? No, no, no. Human nature. But they did not believe them. And so after the women said he's alive, after the two disciples says he's alive, the rest of the disciples said, no, I don't think so. And so Jesus must have thought, all right, I guess I'm gonna have to appear to them myself. And so now we look at verse 14. It says that afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. Now, if you're doubting this whole thing about Jesus, just, just look at this. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear the heart of your pastor. I don't want your first experience of seeing Jesus eyeball to eyeball be a situation where he rebukes you for your unbelief and hardness of heart. And so man, if you're here today and you doubt the resurrection of Christ, my prayer is that today will be the day you put your doubts aside and you step out and you believe that he is risen and you receive him as your Lord. He's alive, he's real. Seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so he rebukes them because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And now we get to the Great Commission, verse 15. And he said to them, 
go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be, what's the word? Condemned. Condemned. You see, it's very clear. Now, does God want to condemn anybody? No. 2 Peter 3, 9 says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's why he sent us as the church to share this good news with people who need to hear about Jesus Christ and how he can change their lives. And so what we just read is called the Great Commission. It's a commandment for Christ followers to preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and then baptize those who accept that gospel message. Now, what you gotta understand is that the Great Commission was not just for the early disciples of the first century. Please, please hear me that the Great Commission is for all Christians of every century and every single generation. And that is why here at Calvary, it's been like this for 14 and a half years since we started in the living room of Lee and Julie Holly. For 14 and a half years, we believe in carrying out the Great Commission. And that's why at Calvary, we embrace this statement right here. Our mission is to fulfill the Great Commission. We're not a social club. It's not us four no more. Do you guys know why we're bringing in um, Mark Waltz to come and, and share with our ministry partners? So that we can take everything to the next level and so that we can welcome people who desperately need this good news and this hope in their lives. It's the great commission. The reason my wife and I left Jupiter, Florida, and loaded up the truck and moved up here and planted this church is because we wanted to fill the great commission to preach the gospel in Port St. Lucie. That's part of the world, right? And so we're here, and look, and look what God's done by his grace. And so we gotta fulfill the Great Commission in our area, and we have to fulfill it in other nations as well. Jesus, according to Matthew, appeared to the 11 in Galilee, and he said, guys, and now I'm quoting Matthew 28 now, all authority's been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. So please say, make disciples. Doesn't say make converts. It doesn't say give them a canned speech and try to coerce them to say a little prayer. Doesn't say that at all. It says make disciples, that's followers. You don't just say a prayer and live your life for yourself. That's not the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We have got to, in this local church, obey the Great Commission in our area, and we have to obey it in other nations. Now, one of the ways, one of the ways that we obey the Great Commission in other nations is by our partnership with an awesome ministry called GVCM, Global Vision Citadel Ministries. GVCM takes care of over 135 orphans. Now check, check it out. Pure religion, undefiled. Take care of the widows and orphans. 
They take care of over 135 orphans. They provide them with food, clothing, shelter, and my favorite, a great Christian education. So the kids aren't just getting an hour of Bible on Sunday, they're getting trained all week long. I can't wait until we build our school across the street. Man, it's gonna be awesome. But this is what they're doing in Haiti. Listen, this is what they're doing in Haiti. Not only that, they partner with 58 churches in Haiti, pastors who are carrying out the Great Commission in their villages, and they also partner with 17 Christian schools. And if that's not enough, they just recently built a medical clinic where they're meeting the physical needs of people in the Mirabele area. By the way, um, is Pastor Eve in the service today? And Sammy? I heard you guys are in town. Pastor Eve is like Philip. He'll baptize you and then he'll disappear because <laughs> he'll end up in somewhere else in the world, but they're not here. Is Mark here or Steve or anybody from the Prophet family? All right, well anyway, if you don't know the Prophet family, um, Eve is in Haiti 80% of the time, but Sammy is here in the States with her two boys. And, and by the way, they're part of this church and they're not just sitting in a row, they're serving. So that's probably where they are right now. They're probably in a children's ministry serving. We have four trips planned to go to Haiti, and I hope you'll pray about going on at least one of them, all right? And so you can get all this information at our website, but in March, there's still room to sign up. You can go with a team from this church, you can disciple those orphans, and you can evangelize the villages. I've been there many times, there's nothing that'll give you more of a spiritual boost than to go to some rural area in Haiti and share the gospel with a voodoo priest or with his family. It's the real deal. You have the opportunity to experience that. You say, I don't know what to say. Just go anyway and stand there and pray. July 11th through 18 is our student ministry trip. I'm excited about what God's gonna do through Andrew and the students in July. August is a medical mission. Perhaps you're part of the, the medical field. Maybe you wanna go in August with the young adults. And then December, Christmas in Haiti outreach, where we, as we've done before, get all the Christmas presents together and have a big Christmas party for the orphans in Haiti. And so it's important that the Great Commission is being lived out, not just talked about. One of the ways we do that is in Haiti. As our church grows and our finances grow, God's put it on my heart for us to partner with more local churches I love it when local churches have Christian schools together. I love the fact that they have a vision for the next generation. And so local churches with Christian schools and orphanages, not just in Haiti, but around the world, as we grow, I would love to get behind more churches in other nations so that we someday can stand before Jesus and not him haul around, but say, Lord, best we knew how in the power of your spirit, we live this stuff out. We do it in other nations and we do it here in our local area. And so that's why, in addition to the smaller things that we do, this year we'll have four large community outreaches. We wanna do that to open doors to our community, be a blessing, and then also share the gospel if God opens the doors to do that. And so in the spring, we're gonna have a four kids foster family outreach if you don't know, Four Kids, they're a foster care agency. They help provide loving Christian homes for foster kids on the Treasure Coast. And so, man, what a great day for us 
to be able to gather with four kids and all those foster families around the Treasure Coast on a Saturday and just have a big fun day for those foster families and their kids. We'll advertise that. Maybe you can get involved and help serve. Summer, love your neighbor. So that's a community work day. We're gonna go out, we're gonna help the Up Center, Treasure Coast Food Bank, Missionary Flights International, Boys and Girls Club, and other organizations. You've been part of our Trunk or Treat. In fact, I just talked to somebody who came to church because of Trunk or Treat. And so thousands of people come to our church. We have an alternative to Halloween. We do something different from the world. We share the love of Jesus and we invite them to come to the church. And many have. And then in winter, we have, we'll have our Christmas outreach where we're gonna get involved in helping nursing homes, Hibiscus House, four kids and others. And so these are ways, just ways for us to carry out this commission of the Lord. Did you know another, I'm almost done, just stay with me, another very simple way of carrying out the Great Commission? It's those little invite cards that we put on your seat every other week. And we're seeing fruit, man, more than ever here in 14 and a half years, we're seeing so many people, you ask them, why are you here? You know, who told you about us? Oh, somebody gave me this card. And so for those of you who are handing these cards out and inviting people, I wanna say thank you. You're being used by the Lord to reach people. It's an awesome thing. And so let's wrap it up with the last few verses of the Gospel of Mark. Verse 17. Jesus says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. When we get to Acts, we're gonna see Paul cast out a demon from a slave girl in Acts 16, 18. They will speak in new tongues. We're gonna see in Acts 2, the disciples spoke in tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. We're gonna see in Acts 28, 3, Paul's making a fire, a deadly serpent comes out of the fire, bites him, he has to shake him loose, and guess what? Paul doesn't die, he gets bit by a venomous snake, he lives. And, it says in verse 18, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. We have no record of this anywhere in the New Testament, but Eusebius, an early church father, quotes in Eusebius 3.39, someone who drank deadly poison, a Christian, and lived. And then it says, and they will live, um, lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And we'll see in Acts chapter three, verse seven, Peter lifts up the crippled man, and guess what? In the name of Jesus Christ, he's not a cripple anymore. This guy walks. These signs will accompany those who believe. And so, before I go on, I gotta throw in this little side note. We all understand here, right, that we're not to handle snakes or drink deadly poison. <laughs> Awkward, I know. We're not supposed to be handling snakes or drinking deadly poison to prove how spiritual we are. We know that, right? If you've heard me say yes. yes. Because I just watched a CNN video they took their camera crew to a church in the Appalachian Mountains, and sure enough, this pastor is handling deadly snakes. So sad. And by the way, another pastor, they, uh, in the report, 
was struck and killed by a deadly snake. And do you know how that pastor who died, do you know how his father died? Who was the pastor? Same thing. It's so sad. I'm watching this video thinking, what planet am I on right now? I don't understand this. And so please, please understand, um, you don't do those things to prove your faith. Check out what David Guzik said. He'll clear it up for you. The promise is to be understood in the context of the dangers that are inherent in the worldwide spread of the gospel. As Paul was bitten by a snake and preserved on the island of Malta. You know, Paul didn't go looking for the snake. It just kind of jumped out at him. Jesus never intended drinking poison or handling snakes to be a specific test or a measure of faith. Right? What did, what did, when Satan said, on the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus, jump down, prove you're the son of God. The angel's gonna come and rescue you. How did, how did Jesus respond to Satan? Don't put the Lord your God to a foolish test. All right, and so I, I, I feel awkward having to say that, but no snake handlers in this church. Amen. <laughs> Last two verses. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Praise God, mission accomplished. And we'll cover the ascension in Acts 1. Last verse. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And that's a perfect lead-in for the beginning of Acts, which will start next weekend. And so I hope you've enjoyed the Gospel of Mark.